Good morning. My name is Janelle Azevedo. I'm a microchurch leader and City Stories director. And today I'm going to be reading Genesis 3, 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put me with here, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of God. Amen. Thanks, Janelle. The last couple weeks we've been in a series that we started in Luke the, the Gospel of Luke of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let me catch you up to speed real quick. The, the Garden story with Jesus is the death before the death, his emotional crucifixion. It's where he really goes to the cross before he will physically go to the cross. And we've been talking about the power of surrender because if you remember in this story of Jesus uh, when he prays to the Father, uh, if you were willing, remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. We've been talking about the power of surrender, surrender from our future, surrender from our dreams, our shame, our flesh. This morning, we're gonna lean into this concept of shame in the next few minutes. We learned from the very beginning of our story and the story that shame is a primary tactic the enemy uses in our life to deceive us. Our enemy uses shame to move us into isolation and into hiding. And nobody has to really teach us to hide. It's just a natural response to feeling shame. Uh, We have four kids. Uh, My third child, who happens to be sitting right here, I didn't know she was going to be in here while I was telling the story. She's our laid back, easygoing, man, she was an easy baby. She's a peacemaker. And when you have four kids, you need a peacemaker. Like, you just need one that's just like, whatever. You know, and like, thank you, Sophie, for being you. Um, But I remember as a kid, she would just, she would grab candy, like a small little infant toddler, and then she would go to like a hiding space and just devour the whole thing. And she knew from a young age, I can't do this in front of anybody. I need to go hide because what I'm doing, and that's about as bad as she got right there. So we'll take that all day. I mean, you don't have to teach somebody that. They say as early as 18 to 24 months that young children, young, young children, they pick up on these verbal and nonverbal cues of shame, of guilt. It could be a look, it could be a word. We pick up on these early. Uh, I was like 15 and a half, almost turning 16. Um, all my friends were going to a high school basketball game. 
I went to Moore High School, but I lived out in kind of the country of Norman, and so I couldn't find anybody to give me a ride. My parents were out of town. My sister had already moved out of the house. It was a little bit of drive to where we were at, and also there was this girl that I was supposed to meet at the high school basketball game, and she was wondering if I was coming, and I'm like, I'm going to find a way. If I have to run there, it's like six miles, but I'm going to find a way to do it because that's what you do, right, at that age. And I was trying to figure out how to get there, and I couldn't get anybody to give me a ride, and so... um, I was not really, you know, a rule breaker, but I decided that this called for rule breaking. And how many of there's two types of people in life? The first type of person is like, I'm going to do it and maybe I'll get caught, maybe not. I don't care. That may be you in the room. There's a second group of people. I'm going to do it and I'm going to feel guilty the entire time that I won't even enjoy it. You guys grew up in church just like me, didn't you? (laughs) Exactly. And that was me. I was like, I'm going to take my my parents' car because they're gone. I'm a good driver. And I remember getting in this car like 10 and 2, like 10 miles under the speed limit. I mean, old women were passing me, flipping me the bird. I was driving that slow. Because I was just like, I'm out of covenant and I'm going to get in a horrible wreck. Because that's what happens to good kids who do bad things. People, bad kids, they do bad things all the time. They never get caught. The good kid, one time. Right? That's how it works. And I had that in my head. I'm like, I'm out of covenant. (laughs) That's literally what was going through my head. I'm out of God's covenant and I'm going to get horribly maimed. You know, somebody's going to find out. And I'm driving to the game and I sit there, I get in the game, I'm next to this girl and my friends, I don't enjoy a minute of it. I'm thinking about, I have to get home. I have to get home. I got to make sure nobody knows that I just did this. And so I drive the car home. It's kind of like a little bit raining and literally I have water tracks from the tires going into the garage and I'm on the ground, like wiping them up (laughs) because leave no trace, right? <laughs> like I'm disposing of a dead body, but I didn't. I just drove the car to the game and, and back, but I'm going to leave. And I remember I couldn't look at my parents for a week, right? I, conf- I confessed them eventually, like five years later. <laughs> hey, so I did this while back. And I remember sitting in youth group that Wednesday night, like I don't even care what the service is about. I'm going to the altar because if I died tonight, I would not go to heaven. Come on now. Anybody been there? Some of you, I just summed up your childhood. Nobody has to teach us to hide, do they? It it is a natural response when we feel shame, when we feel guilt. Let me define some of these terms I think will help us. Uh, Guilt is this, a result of something I've done that negatively affects someone else. I have done something bad. Guilt often looks at our behaviors. Guilt can be a negative thing. It can also be a positive thing when it helps us to identify how we've negatively impacted ourselves or others. But shame is different, and that's what I want you to see this morning. Shame is a feeling that is deeply associated with a person's sense of self. I am bad. It's not that I just did something bad. I'm bad. I'm not enough. There is something inherently wrong with me. I I don't matter. See, shame goes to our core. It goes to our identity. It's not just I did something. No, that's who I am. In Kurt Thompson's book, The Soul of Shame, he describes shame as an attendant that is always by your side. But this attendant is not for your good, but instead infuses nonverbal and verbal elements of judgment into every moment of your day. How many know this is what our enemy does? The attendant is attuned to every image, feeling, thought, and behavior you have. Imagine yourself having a shame attendant right there with you all throughout the day, and whenever you do anything, their shame attendant is right there whispering to you, like, I told you. I told you you don't measure up. I told you you weren't good enough to do this. 
I told you because of what's your past or your struggle. See, we, I, I think we can have these traumatic moments in our life that cause shame, but I also think it's an accumulation of all the little small moments throughout our day and week where we pick up on this. You pick up on, in, in the tone of your spouse's voice because you realize that you didn't follow through with what you said you were gonna do once again and you feel that shame. You get a call from your child's school that their behavior or their grades are not up to par and yet here you are again and your shame attendant is telling you like you can't even raise your kids. Anybody ever been there? Just me? Okay, cool. The boss who motivates you by comparing you to another employee who's outperforming you as a way to like get you going, but it's just your shame attendant is just telling you, I told you. I told you, right? A job loss, a job transition, a job miscue. In the car before you step into an uncomfortable conversation, a meeting or an interview, you're not enough. When you're backstage and worship is going and you're about to step out and preach a message and the enemy whispers to you, you have nothing to offer these people. Anybody ever been there? No, just me? Cool. Yeah. All the time. When you walk in front of the mirror, when you're getting dressed in the morning and you look in the mirror and it's just not what you want to see, right? And there your shame attendant is telling you, like, man, other people can pull off that look, but I don't know if you can. You're not enough. There's something wrong with you. I've been on this kick the last few years where I've really just enjoyed studying the brain and spiritual formation, just how the brain's wired. And I know that kind of sounds weird, but I've just been reading a lot of books on it because it just intrigues me. We've learned so much about how the brain operates and different things. And then I'm always a guy that wanted to learn about spiritual formation. And so just how they they coincide, how they go together. And there's still a lot we don't know and that I don't know. But I do know this is that our brains from a very early age develop neural pathways, almost like roads that we create in our brains for how we see the world. And some neural pathways are good and some neural pathways are destructive. And, and you can believe these neural pathways because you've believed a lie, you've believed an untruth, you know, you've, you've experienced something. All of these things can shape your neural pathway. You almost think of it as like if you were to put on rose-colored glasses, that's the way that you see reality around you. You see through those rose-colored glasses, and so everything becomes tainted towards that because that's how your brain has been formed. See, if you'd asked me several years ago, what's the role of shame in your life, I would have probably looked at you and said, I got plenty of issues, but I don't think that's one of them. I just, I don't don't think that's one, that's not really one of my core struggles. But the last year and a half to two years, um, I've been doing more regular counseling. And so I've always seen a counselor, I've had a counselor as long as I can remember, but I've never seen my counselor this much. And how many know there are seasons of life where you have to do that, Amen. Or you got to walk through some of your stuff and you got to dig up some things and you got to figure out why certain things are happening. And I've been working through and reflecting and processing a lot of my story and, and, and I begin to identify some of these lies or negative cognitions that I had just believed about the world. And some of you, if you're sitting here at City Church, you've, you may have 13 years heard me preach messages on identity and being rooted in God's word and I believe every word of that and I live a lot of that but I've still believed certain lies as a young kid that affects me personally. And today's message, if you haven't found out, is very personal. The first lie that has dictated a lot of my life is a feeling of powerlessness and helplessness. What happens when you feel powerless and helpless, you try to take control. I'll be the first to tell you, I've had control issues most of my life. How many know control is just an illusion? You've never had it. And the harder you try to grip on it, 
to it, the more that it eludes you, right? And I can know that, and yet I still live my life trying to gain some sense of control because I hate the feeling of helplessness. I I hate the feeling like I can't dictate circumstances around me. And so people who do that, if you're wired like me, what you do is you grab onto something until you choke the life out of it and yourself. That's a different message for a different day. The second lie that has dominated my life is this, and you probably guessed it, is the desire or the need to be perfect. As early as I can remember, if I go back and I process my story as a young kid, for whatever reason, I found my sense of self-worth by being the best. And I found out a way a lot of times to be the best, whether it was baseball or sports or school or whatever it was in, I loved the feeling of knowing that I did something and was recognized for what what I had accomplished. But the problem about this is when you drill down into this, I need to be perfect or the best, you realize that the root of it is often shame a feeling that you're not enough. I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough. I'm only as good as the last thing I've done. I had an incredible upbringing. I had amazing parents. I did not have a traumatic childhood. It was amazing. And yet I developed neural pathways as a very young kid that said that I began to look at life and everything through this desire to be the best and perfect. And so not too long ago, in fact, probably such a short time ago, it would make you uncomfortable. I was sitting in my counselor's office, and he looked at me and he said, Matt, the same reason you've accomplished so much by the age of 39 is the same reason you're sitting here today with me. Because the way that you're wired has driven you to accomplish a lot, and yet there's a dead-end road to it. There's an expiration to it, right? I mean, no shame can be subtle. It's often cloaked in really good things. After April, after Easter, we're going to go into a series called Becoming Family, and I'm going to pick up in this message, and I'm going to continue to tell some some of my story to you, not because I really want to tell my story to you, but I think that God is calling me to lead the way in vulnerability in our community, out of my weakness and not out of my strength, or at least that's what my counselor has told me. (laughs) (laughs) The book of Genesis, let's keep going. The beginning, our story. A God who creates with joy, intention, purpose. That is Genesis 1 and 2. You were not an accident. You weren't formed by random matter and chaos and the gods of this world. You were crafted and created for joyful community with this Trinitarian fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit where you feel no shame, where you're completely vulnerable, where you get to enjoy and rest in the love of the Father as you explore the world that he's created you. You steward his creation. You co-create with the creator of the universe. Anybody else want to be signed up for that? I mean, it was a place of just perfect harmony, No shame, rhythm of relationship with God, his creation, and others. It actually tells us, the Genesis writer, it tells us in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. The writer tells us that because it's important that we understand that and know that, that there was literally this perfect vulnerability where there was no need to cover and hide. That's foreign to us, right? I've never met that person. Actually, I have met that person in college in a boy's dorm. There was a few guys that were just like, put something on. Nobody wants to see that. But other than that, I've never experienced that. You know those people. Felt no shame. Like no reason to hide myself. The vulnerability of nakedness is the opposite of shame. 
And we all desire to be fully known and fully loved. Like you may not even know that about yourself, but deep down in your core identity, you wanna be fully known for who you are and fully loved and accepted. And we fear what it means to be rejected. No reason to hide. Genesis chapter two says there's a serpent introduced to us as crafty, proposes a question that introduces doubt to Eve's mental framework. I want you to see what's happening here. It's just a question, but the serpent plants these seeds of doubt to her narrative, to her framework, to her understanding of how Eve sees the world. And these doubts begin to produce more doubts and more shame and disillusionment as Eve begins to talk through it. And here's what the serpent does. Eve, Eve, do you really uh, think that God doesn't want you to be like him? Why doesn't God want you to have what he has? Eve, if it's good to you, how can it not be good to God or good to others? Maybe, Eve, maybe you're not as important to him as you think you are. Maybe, Eve, you're not enough. Maybe, Eve, this is not enough. Maybe you need more than what you have right now. And Eve entertains a different way of seeing God, the world, and others. If you're taking notes and following along, shame seeks to rupture our relational connection with God and others. That is the purpose of shame. That is the purpose of the enemy to take God's good, created rhythm and rupture it so you no longer live in this vulnerable place of love and acceptance, but now you, you move into the shadows where shame lives and shame grows. See, the serpent is not concerned with facts or truth, but just about disrupting the relational connection that Eve has with both God and Adam. Shame distorts truth and locks us in a prison of our own untruth. That's what happens. It locks you in a prison of your own lie that you've believed about God or about others. And then here's what actually happens in Eve's mind. She begins to retell the story of the tree of life through the lens of doubt and shame. Now, instead of the tree being off limits, the tree becomes a potential source of life for Eve. It becomes a potential source of now how she can cope with her distress and the awareness of her inadequacy and the isolation and the shame. How do I cope with this feeling that I feel of doubt and insecurity? I've got to go find something to fulfill this void. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Eve adopts a new framework, a mental framework, a new narrative. She saw it was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. If you're taking notes, all sin, all idolatry, all coping strategies in which I indulge are ways for me to satisfy my deep hunger for relationship, relationship with God and relationship with others. That's the only thing that can satisfy and that's what you and I were designed for and so when that's broken apart, we, we want it restored at all cost. My longing to be known and loved, my desire to be desired. That's what I want, that's what I need, and every other thing I bring into my life is just a way to try to cope with the reality that something broken in me and the world around us. Just like you and me, nobody has to tell Adam and Eve to hide, do they? It is a natural response 
It's been a natural response probably since we've grown up in your life and even today when you walk through something that you feel like is shameful, it's like I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go into the background. I'm going to isolate. It's just how it works. See, here's the irony of how shame operates and if you don't hear anything else this morning, I hope you pick up on this. Our deepest longings are to be fully known and fully loved, to experience this deep connection with God and others, but we are terrified of vulnerability. We're terrified of the potential for rejection. In fact, you know what we do? We pretty much self-sabotage ourselves. You know what? I'm not worthy of being accepted and loved, and I'm so fearful that I'm going to be rejected again, so I'm going to isolate myself before someone else rejects me. You ever been there? That is exactly how shame operates. You don't deserve to be loved and accepted. They're probably gonna reject you when they find out who you are and what you struggle with, so you might as well just disqualify yourself before you ever enter into a relationship. That is straight from the pit of hell in Genesis chapter three. That is the primary tactic of the enemy. And if he can get you to back up into the shadows where nobody knows and you're struggling with your own and he he tells you, you got this, you can manage this, you can do this. No, you don't. You don't got this. You can't manage it. You weren't designed to. You were designed to, to live this out in relational harmony with other people, just like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in relational harmony with each other. That's what you were designed for. That's actually what this, the body of Christ, was designed to be. Do we practice that? Do we live that? Shame produces fear, which causes us to withdraw from God and isolate ourselves from others. Here's what I know about your marriage, and the reason I know this about your marriage is because I've been married for 15 years, and I know this about us. I know that no matter what I go to this woman right here with, she's going to love, she's gonna create a place of grace, she's gonna accept me, we're gonna work through it. 15 years of marriage, how many know you have to work through plenty of things? And yet, you know how hard it is for me to be vulnerable still? And there's even times in our marriage, I'll go to her, I'm like, babe, I'm gonna talk to you about this. And I'm vulnerable. Does the vulnerability separate us? No. If you're married in the room, you're like, no, that vulnerability often brings you together. That's the place where trust is developed. That's the place where, and she'll always look at me and she's like, I'm so glad you shared that with me. That does not separate you from me at all. In fact, it just makes me love you more. It makes me um, identify with you more because I realize you're human, that you make mistakes or that you fall short or that you have struggles. See, that's the beauty of vulnerability. We're thinking in our mind like worst possible scenarios. Will I be rejected and will I be loved? And the whole time God's saying, bring it out of the shadows, bring it into the light where I can set you free. Now here's the other side of the story because I don't want you to think that I'm running through rose fields and lilies and it's all great. When you step out of the shadows, there's potential for rejection, isn't there? That's why you have to be careful who you share certain things with. Amen? You don't go to anybody. But as you step out of the shadows and you bring it into the light and there's vulnerability there, you've just disarmed one of the primary tactics of the enemy. But instead we self-sabotage ourselves. It's it's what I deserve. I deserve isolation, so I'm going to go ahead and do that before anybody else does. And that's the power of shame. Shame has no control over you unless you give it control. Shame has no power unless you stay in the shadow in the darkness, right? Right? This is an example of people who have been hurt by the church. City Church has been a place where people who have been hurt by the church make their way through, and I love that. 
I love that. I, I think we've been a safe place for people who have church hurt. But what I struggle with is that we've been hurt by the church and so we stand on the outside of the body of Christ looking in and we become critics because we've been hurt. And it's too, it's too much for us to go back in and do this ourselves again. And so we've just, we're just gonna stand on the outside and we're gonna observe other people because we're already living with this I'm just waiting for you to hurt me mentality. You cannot thrive there. You, you, you were not created to live there. You've got to get in the game, skin on skin, life on life relationship where it gets, guess what, messy. It gets messy, but that's the body of Christ. That's the beauty of relational harmony. And we have to be courageous enough to step into it. Adam and Eve respond to shame and nakedness by hiding and covering themselves, which is a natural response to shame. But in the midst of their shame and hiding, we serve a God who comes looking for us, amen? We serve a God who comes looking for us. If you were with us the last few months, right before we moved in here, we were in a serious scandalous grace, the prodigal son, a God who waits on the street corner looking left and right for you to come home. Hosea and Gomer, you remember that story? Hosea goes, looks for his prostitute wife in the back alley behind the bar area saying, have you seen her? As God calls her to go, God calls the prophet Hosea to go find his woman who's been unfaithful to him. God comes looking for us in Genesis chapter two and three. In the midst of our shame, what does God do? He calls them out of their hiding. The second thing he does is this, and this one's a hard one for us, he confronts them with truth. How many know when you're living in shame and darkness and a lie, you have to be confronted with truth because only truth can set you free? God loves you too much for you to stay in your lie and darkness. And so he confronts them with truth and he clothes their nakedness. That's what God does. See, our greatest fear is that we're gonna be abandoned or rejected and isolated. And I am here to tell you, if you hear nothing else that I said this morning, God will never abandon you. Never reject you. His disappointment doesn't keep him from you. He is always moving towards you. Think about that. God is always moving towards you. Three things as we wrap this up this morning. If we're to live in freedom from the power of shame and its control in our life, number one, we must believe the right story about God, ourselves, and others. What's the narrative that you believe? If you're in this room today and you think that God is disappointed in you, you can never have an intimate relationship with a heavenly father you believe is disappointed in you. Because that creates distance. You've got to get the narrative right, the story about God yourself. That's what the, the, the serpent does to Eve. I want to shift your mental framework just enough where you're going to doubt the goodness of God and his creation, and you're going to search for it in somewhere else. Number two, we must courageously move into honest vulnerability with others. As we move into our series after Easter, Becoming Family, we're going to lean into what it really means to be vulnerable what it means to be a community of vulnerability. Kurt Thompson in his book says this, he says, shame positions itself in such a way as to keep borders tightly closed and vulnerability at a minimum. It teaches us not to reveal weakness, fearing that to do so will lead to our being shamed, the very antithesis of what we need for human flourishing. We have in Jesus one who is willing to put his naked vulnerability on full display, opening himself to all that evils employ could throw at him, which leads us to the third one is this. We must release the hold of shame on our lives through the cross and the work of Jesus. 
we must release the hold of shame. I want you to make sure you understand this this morning. When Jesus went to the cross, he took your shame to the cross with him. Shame doesn't have to control you. Shame doesn't have to have any power over your life, but you have to choose to walk in life. It won't just happen because you prayed a prayer, right? You have to choose to release the hold that it has. You have to confess and get the narrative right of who God is and who you are in Christ, your identity. When your shame attendant comes your way, and I'm telling you he will, he does, and tells you that you're not enough, what do you have in your arsenal to combat? What are your weapons of warfare? Do you know the truth? Do you know scripture? Do you have the community of faith around you that says, nope, that's a lie straight from the pit of hell. That's not who you are. Oh yeah, that thing did happen to you when you were 13 years old. That does not define your life. It will not define your future and it is not who you are, amen? What do we use? What do we have? I wanna read Hebrews 12 as we end this morning together. In fact, I want you to stand with me across this room. I wanna end with this passage. Hebrews chapter 12, verse one pretty famous passage. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's stop for a minute. Who are the cloud of witnesses? Hebrews 11, this great hall of faith. All the men and women that have gone before us, the people that surround us who have been faithful, persevered. Since we're surrounded by all this great cloud of witness, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its, say it with me, scorning its, Jesus scorned its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The cross was not just a tool of execution. The cross was designed to be a tool of humility. They didn't want to just execute Jesus. They wanted to humiliate him, shame him. It was how to die with the least possible dignity. We're going to mock you. We're going to beat you. We're going to shame you as you lay there, as you're powerless. And Jesus took our shame to that cross. once and for all. So here's the question. Not can we live in, in victory, free from shame, but will we? Will you surrender the hold of shame, the lies that the enemy has gripped you with? See, I'm fully aware of the lies that I have a tendency to believe. I just shared them with you. What does the enemy whisper to you? What is the Spirit of God whispering to you this morning? Maybe some of you, you have been in isolation and darkness and the Holy Spirit is telling you this morning, I know you're scared to come out, but there is such freedom and such victory and such life. Don't for a minute believe that the consequences or the repercussions of vulnerability are greater than the consequences of isolation. They're not. They're not. That's what the enemy will tell you. 
Holy Spirit, we just invite you into this place to take your word, to take your truth and apply it to our hearts. There's not a person in this room that doesn't struggle with identity, shame. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to our, each heart this morning. People that need to be set free. People that need to be reminded of your love for them, of your goodness. Whatever it is they need, Father, we just open our hearts to receive you today. Have your way in us. City Church, right where you're at, if you would just begin to prepare your hearts to come to the table. Just allow the Holy Spirit to search you right now and prepare your heart.